Streaming data platforms like Kafka, Pulsar, and Kinesis are now common in mainstream enterprise architectures, providing low-latency, real-time messaging for analytics and applications. However, stream processing, the act of filtering, transforming, or analyzing the data inside the messages, is still an exercise left to the receiving microservice or data store, a custom programming exercise likely repeated over and over within an application. Stream processing tools such as Apache Flink and KSQL Database have been around for half a decade, but their complexity has hindered adoption. Decodable's mission is to radically simplify processing on the stream with a SaaS platform based on Flink and only using SQL, which frees up developers to focus on what matters most. Eric Sammer is founder and CEO of Decodable and joins the show to discuss the potential of stream processing, its role in modern data platforms, and how it's being used today. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it has been a long while. Last time you came on, we were talking about Rokana, which is a previous company that you built. And since then, you've seen the world of data engineering evolve up close. And it's become quite crowded. And I think the area of focus for Decodable, which is your new company, is an area that's crowded as well, which is streaming data. And I think the streaming data systems today that get the most usage are probably Spark Streaming, Flink, you know, there's a variety of others. But streaming is also, it's it's kind of a broad term. So maybe you could focus in on what area of the stack you are focusing on with Decodable. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I agree with you completely. I think that it's a really complicated and nuanced space with sort of different people with different opinions about how it should work. And different tech stacks and probably arguably different products to sell. Our position here is that maybe it almost makes sense to start with what we're not. We are not trying to replace the messaging systems, Kafka, Pulsar, Kinesis, GCP, PubSub, those kinds of things. Our position is that increasingly people know those systems. They work really well in most use cases. There's an ecosystem around them. And so I think the most important thing for us is that people don't have to replatform or any of those kinds of things. So we think that messaging is, I don't want to say a solved problem, but you know, increasingly served by the, the systems that are out there. Like you said, the stream processing engines themselves, and I think you're right, Spark Streaming, Flink, you know, to some degree, we see some like KStreams or KSQL DB and like those kinds of things. Those things are out there they are kind of painful in a lot of places. And so our position is like a lot of people don't want to deal with checkpoint offsets, offset management, state management, and sort of the operations of these things because these streaming pipelines do look more like microservices than they look like batch data processing jobs. And I think that that's one of a couple of different dimensions in which stream processing is a pain is that it sort of has like a higher order operational overhead to it. But our position is like one, let's up level it and get people out of thinking about 
the low level details of like distributed checkpointing systems and state management and job control and configuration and task parallelization and those kinds of things. Let's make it a service for people so that they don't have to deploy a whole lot of software. And like, you know, for better and worse, I'll say, you know, let's pick an interface for people that most aligns with the knowledge that they have. And and rather than having people write sort of like data flow style programs in low level programming languages where they have to deal with serialization and like all these other kinds of, you know, details in addition to the business logic, let's just do it with SQL. And that does mean that there are certain things that are hard to express, you know, certain jobs basically that I think somebody could, you know, wouldn't be able to accomplish. But at the same time, it means that like mere mortals can build like the 80% of cases that are like filter, parse, transform, restructure, and those kinds of things. So we tend to be the processing layer connecting all the source systems to all the destination or sync systems, you know, that allow people to self-serve. You know, they don't have to know the guts of Flink or the guts of Spark and like all these other kinds of things. And we do that by kind of up-leveling the developer experience to make it a little bit more tenable. So I think Decodable is to stream processing what like GitHub is to Git, if you like that analogy. We're trying to sort of put like all the workflow and sort of like nice, you know, quality of life stuff around it, in addition to just being the right way to run stream processing jobs. Gotcha. So... These other platforms like Kafka Streaming or Spark Streaming or Flink, they have years of open source work that have gone into them to make them resilient streaming platforms. Maybe the APIs aren't perfect. Maybe there's some issues with them, but you know they do work. Are you describing a system that's built on top of other streaming systems and just provides a SQL API, or is this an entirely new streaming platform? Great question. I think that we are 100% standing on the backs of giants. We use very heavily Apache Flink. We're big fans of Apache Flink. So Decodable's core engine is definitely absolutely based on Apache Flink because of exactly what you described. It's been beaten up by you know, Netflix and Lyft and Uber and sort of all these different people who have kind of put it through its paces over a long period of time. And so even though it's got its warts, right, you know, it's a little bit hard to use, it's hard to deploy, it's got a bunch of different APIs and like these kinds of things. The engine itself is incredibly stable and does exactly what it purports to do, you know, at least in in, in most cases. The real challenge is the usability of it. And so we are focused on the, you know, kind of abstracting the parts of Flink away that are a little bit challenging and patching over some of the, what we believe and and what some of our customers believe are sort of gaps in functionality and those kinds of things and sort of, you know, obviously stabilizing it and like those kinds of things. So we're, we're probably like your typical open core enterprise data company, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Now, if you try to sell a new infrastructure product to an established market, it can be hard to ease your way into a trusted position. It's probably maximally hard if you're building a database. If you're building a streaming system, it's a little bit different because at least 
you know, people are standing up new streaming data pipelines all the time. Maybe they can try out your system. So maybe you can talk about the prototypical use cases that people are willing to try out for decodable where it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think you're on the money. You know, you can have the best technology in the world, but if it's too painful for someone to try and sort of figure out whether or not it's right for them, it's basically dead on arrival. So for us, you know, one of the core tenants is that we sort of fit nicely into the larger ecosystem. And I think that that's really important, you know, sort of the existing way that people deploy and build these kinds of systems internally. So one, that means that there's, there can't be any proprietary formats and stuff like that. So like specifically as an example, if you already have Kafka deployed, which we love, you know, and your data is flowing with like Avro messages or protobuf messages or JSON messages over those Kafka topics, you can add decodable as effectively just another consumer, what you were sort of getting at, you know, it's a little bit easier with streaming systems, just another consumer off of that and build your pipelines, see whether or not that makes sense for you. And if it does, you can sort of slowly replace some of, you know, existing pipelines or, or even just add to sort of the existing infrastructure, you know, by running those things in parallel, maybe for certain users or use cases, And it effectively can coexist with more complex jobs that have to be written in a lower level API. Like maybe you have to build Flink jobs for, I don't know, some really complex ML jobs or, you know, online training systems and things like that that are hard to express in SQL or where you just kind of have pre-existing code or libraries that you want to be able to use, you know, maybe Decodable isn't like the right place, you know, to do some of that stuff. And we, we're okay with that. We love that, you know, as part of what we do. So typically people deploy or use Decodable in two different cases. One is what I would call sort of the core main data platform where people either don't have maybe Kafka deployed or Kinesis or those kinds of things because they haven't kind of made that jump to either event-driven services or or real-time data integration into data warehousing products and things like that. And in that case, they're going to use Decodable to connect directly to, you know, things like S3 and like all these other kinds of things. And, And sort of Decodable winds up becoming the place where they build kind of all of their pipelines. The other use case, and I think this one we have seen more commonly, to your point, we don't have the trust of uh, customers the way, you know, as a vendor yet, because we are, you know, we've only been around for about a year and those kinds of things. You have to earn your place in the core data stack. And I think that's a healthy skepticism. So typically what people do is they will go to one team within within a larger organization and they say like hey like you know and it's typically a team that already knows SQL and those kinds of things and they'll say like hey why don't you try this for a couple of your pipelines and see if it works because it does sort of naturally fit in and if it does then we kind of like spread you know horizontally to other teams and eventually we may earn our right to be like the core like artisanally crafted critical data pipelines that carry like every financial transaction in in a bank or something like that. But it does start with these, basically the end consumers, 
right? The data science team or, you know, maybe a product recommendation pipeline or, you know, like those kinds of things that sort of are more on the consumption side than the production side in the streaming capacity. And then we sort of, like I said, we kind of earn the right to move from there. And this allows people to kind of see it in action. And and in fact, the business is designed around this. We have a free tier so you actually don't even need to call us. Like you sort of stand up a pipeline and just see if Decodable works for you. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, we'd love to learn why. But you know, it, it's not going to like bring down your entire bank or your entire insurance company or something like that. So in building Decodable, you have to build connectors to mediate the streams, basically as the interface between different sources of data like messaging services and storage services and databases and the streaming data pipelines. So there's such a plethora of connectors that you potentially have to build to pull from these different places. I mean, there's entire companies built around data connectors, you know, the the five trans and censuses of the world. So how do you avoid getting mired in the connector problem? Oh my goodness. You know, this is like a hot button topic, even within Decodable about where do we need to build versus where can we actually leverage something that's kind of already in place? I think you're 100% right. The short answer is that we focus primarily on like what we think of as the tier one systems is the messaging systems. And the reason why is because a couple of things. One, increasingly database vendors and you know service providers, you know, like SaaS businesses like Salesforce or Marketo and like those kinds of companies are basically gaining first class support for things like Kafka and streaming systems because they they're sort of starting to become lingua franca for the way that people think about you know the network of data. There are definitely people who still think like the data warehouse is sort of the nexus of the world. I'll be honest with you. I think it's one big consumer, but it is just one consumer off of a lot of the streaming infrastructure. That might be another discussion. But so we build first and foremost, the connectors to the messaging systems, Red Panda, Kafka, Pulsar, Kinesis, those kinds of systems. Our second ring of connectors where we're sort of starting to get more involved is the change data capture world and like being able to consume CDC streams and produce, you know, into database systems. And there, I'll be honest with you, I don't think we're ever going to be the company that has the long tail of like, you know, Oracle 7 and mainframe connectors and, you know, those kinds of things. So we're very purposely being thoughtful about the kinds of systems. For instance, Postgres, MySQL, and Mongo are sort of easy to, Cassandra is probably easy to understand. You start maybe Oracle, but like as you get into the like more and more like either traditional database vendors <laughs> and then legacy systems, I think we, to your point, we avoid those like as much as we can and rely on the fact that there are other companies that will build those connectors because it is high value. It's just not our business. Build those connectors and they will produce that data to the messaging systems. And so to us, 
the messaging systems are becoming sort of the central universe of those things. And certainly, you know, like Confluent, for instance, has done an excellent job of building a lot of those really, really complex connectors. We don't want to compete in that space. You know, like you said, there's other people who have done these kinds of things. Now that said, I mean, you mentioned five train, you mentioned census, you know, there's like high touch and like all the reverse ETL people and stuff like that. I think that those things are a little bit challenging because they effectively avoid the messaging systems. And I think that that's actually a mistake. I think the fact that like FiveTran wants to produce directly into the data warehouse means that all of the microservices and all of the operational infrastructure basically doesn't get access to that data. And it still needs to be sort of like somehow made available to the places where the operational systems get that. And similarly with the reverse ETL world, like I really wish that census and high touch, for instance, would support getting data from messaging systems versus the data warehouse, because a lot of these operational systems like microservices, for instance, that need to produce usage information about billing need to talk to Salesforce, forcing that through the data warehouse puts this sort of like one, it's really expensive compute. And two, it puts the system that doesn't have the same kind of SLA into the hot path. And so while these people have the connectors, they're not necessarily accessible to the community of people who need to build those kinds of applications, these operational systems, microservices that are event-driven like I said, certainly a lot of this data does go into the data warehouse. I think we, I'm not anti-data warehouse. I'm just saying that like, I think that operational systems, which again, like a lot of the Salesforce, Marketo, Eloqua, like push notifications to customers and like updates around account information and those kinds of things. What you want is central governance. What you don't want is like central database. And I think that like increasingly, you know, that becomes a challenge. So like, one, we try and limit our development of connectors to what we think of as being sort of critical. And I do think in five years, I think Salesforce, for instance, just started supporting Kafka. I think in five years, every one of the producers of data will natively support, you know, Kafka or something like it. I think all the consumers will natively support Kafka or something like it. And I think the database warehouse vendors like Snowflake and and BigQuery and like Redshift and all these other folks already have some capacity to ingest from things like Kafka. Apache Pino and Druid, for instance, and a lot of the new breed low latency analytical systems, which we love already support native, you know, consumption from Kafka. So, you know, or messaging like systems. And so I truly think that we are already where the world is going to end up in a couple of years, where the connectors become less and less important because everybody is starting to sort of think about this as change events or append only events on streams. But, you know, well, I think we watch this stuff closely. We build connectors. For instance, we have like an S3 connector because it's just so common. But like, I think we're really thoughtful about where we do this. And because we don't have any of those proprietary formats, your entire Kafka Connect ecosystem and all these other kinds of things already work with Decodable. So like we've managed to leverage what the community of, of people around these systems have already done. So you are managing the data pipelines yourself on your own server infrastructure, correct? That's right, yeah. Can you talk about 
the server abstractions that you're using to host the data pipelines? Like are you using Fargate containers or EC2 instances or give yeah. me some context for the infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, it's a bear. <laughs> you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about this problem. So under the hood, there's a couple of things that we need to do. We need to make sure that people get sort of the right kind of quality of service for each one of these pipelines. We need to be able to handle certain kinds of failures and limit the blast radius of those failures because these are low latency streams. So under the hood, Decodable is sliced up into cells and each cell is limited to a certain number of customers. And so basically, you know, we sort of always play with these numbers, but let's assume, for instance, that we never let more than 50 customers into a cell. Under the hood, the cell is basically a set of Kubernetes namespaces that guarantee, that form like a boundary of low-level access control that correspond potentially to node groups, or they could be shared over physical machines. We happen to, in AWS, for instance, we happen to use EKS because we're lazy and EKS helps us sort of like deal with some of those kinds of things without sort of a whole lot of engineering effort. And then we pack tenants or customers into those cells. When you start up a connection or a pipeline in Decodable, what we're actually doing is allocating dedicated containers for that. So like startup can actually take a couple of seconds because we're sort of actually spinning up containers for that. And that cell is all the way down to the Kubernetes level of control. So we have the ability, for instance, to say this cell is on this Kubernetes cluster, because like I said, there's a control plane to the cell and a data plane to the cell. And each one of those corresponds to a Kubernetes namespace. And then we can decide what cells or what namespaces are pinned to what nodes. And in certain cases, we can actually pack multiple cells onto one Kubernetes cluster, or we could decide that this cell is so important, it gets its own Kubernetes cluster so that we're actually resilient, or at least we limit the blast radius to, you know, the Kubernetes control plane and etcd and sort of like all the stuff that happens with Kubernetes. And then... The Kubernetes cluster is basically a one-to-one relationship with the low-level VPC infrastructure. So, for instance, this gives us the ability to decide, A, how many tenants do we pack into a cell? B, whether or not that cell is on a shared Kubernetes cluster or a single cell Kubernetes cluster. And C, what nodes that corresponds to. And D, the L2 network segment that those nodes are sort of like have access to. And so in like a an on-demand tier, we may pack many, many tenants together and they might share infrastructure. In the case of like sensitive customers, either for security reasons or for performance reasons, that might be a one-to-one-to-one-to-one mapping where basically a single cell gets a dedicated L2 segment. And we attach other things to the notion of cell for instance, like credentials. So we don't share credentials across cells. So in, you know, God help us, the the terrible case where there's like a security incident, they're basically trapped within a cell and they can only sort of operate within a cell. Over time, we've talked about, for instance, like do we allow the data plane to run under the customer's VPC versus ours? And like maybe we run the control plane. We've talked about sort of different permutations of that. And there, that's just a place where we sort of listen to customers and sort of learn how they want to think about it. But we have a bunch of different levers about 
how densely we pack the cells, how many cells do we have, and we've designed it to be relatively cheap to provision additional cells, right? I mean, it's like I said, we could, it's as cheap as, you know, multiple namespaces on a cube cluster. So that's like the two minute explanation of what, you know, the underlying infrastructure looks like. And that architecture for us has proven to be really resilient to like weird jobs that do terrible things, you know, can control the outbreak of, you know, those kinds of things. Now we have a much easier problem than low level Flink and Spark and those kinds of things, because the only jobs that customers can express are via SQL. And we know what those operators look like. And we know how to control those things. There's not arbitrary code. And so as a result, we have like already gotten around like a bunch of things where like somebody writes like a weird UDF or something like that. We don't really have those kinds of problems by design of like the product that we give out to people. So that actually allows us to avoid a host of really, really complex problems in the multi-tenancy capacity. Has the tires really been kicked on on the system? Have have there been some really large data workloads that you've thrown onto the system to see how it works? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we do sort of the normal sort of enterprise burn-in testing and performance testing and those kinds of things. We also do regular things like, you know, we're constantly like upgrading the underlying infrastructure and stuff like that. So at any, you know, patching it for security, you know, updates and those kinds of things. So like at any given moment, <laughs> there's always like a node restarting or joining or leaving a cluster or something like that. We do continuously deploy and sort of have different deployment gates, you know, as different versions of the runtime of the system make it out there. And then we we obviously have customers that just beat it up, you know, with running lots of small pipelines, a small number of big pipelines, you know, different combinations of those kinds of things. And we do have different levels of sophistication of customers because, like I said, one of the things we're trying to do is make it easy for people to build these pipelines. So if somebody has been building pipelines with like Airflow and DBT and Snowflake, you know, they probably don't have low level knowledge of like Flink and streaming and those kinds of things. And so, you know, sometimes we get some like pretty wacky SQL that does some really interesting stuff. And, you know, I got to tell you, like on the whole, you know, we have seen the system be pretty resilient to this. And to be fair, a lot of that is the hard work of like the Flink community you know, in dealing with those kinds of failures, a lot of, you know, I don't want to be unfair to the team. Certainly the team at Decodable does an awful lot of work around state recovery and job recovery and and sort of retry mechanisms and like all sorts of deep tuning. But like, that's our business. That's our value to people. And so if we're going to be good at what we are trying to be good at, it really is incumbent on us to be able to respond to those kinds of failures. So we, we've we seen the unit of work for Decodable is the task, right? So a pipeline is allocated a certain number of tasks or a maximum number of tasks from the user. So you might say, I'm going to process this amount of data and I want to allow up to 10 concurrent tasks. And then the query engine is going to decide if it can parallelize you know, up to 10 tasks. And if so, what tasks, which operators get assigned to which nodes in that job graph, you know, and in those kinds of cases, you know, we are able to sort of deal with 
about you know eighty to a hundred thousand events per second per task, or you know about eight megabytes to ten megabytes per second per task. You know whichever one you hit first. So if you have like small events or large events that can change performance characteristics, obviously the complexity of the SQL can change performance characteristics. But that's sort of like our sort of you know what we think of as the unit of work. And so you can imagine people who show up with like a hundred task or a thousand task deep pipeline, you know, really put some pretty serious work on the runtime. But, you know, myself and some of the other folks on the team have quite a bit of experience running Kafka and Pulsar and Kinesis and Flink and those kinds of things at scale. And so we have some pretty good idea about, you know, where things break down and and why and what to look for and the leading indicators and stuff like that. We've gotten pretty good at running Flink, you know, both at Decodable and, you know, from some of the previous places that we've worked, you know, to see this stuff at scale. So SQL's great, but there are probably a lot of people that have defined their pipelines imperatively. So is there some complexity or uh, communication difficulty in defining for your users the kind of the spec for how to define everything in SQL? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it depends on the audience. You know, I think you're right in that a lot of the more sophisticated shops you know, who have been dealing with streaming for a longer period of time may already be thinking in like Apache Beam or Flink or Spark or K-Streams. And I honestly, you know, I think if those things are working for people and they don't have challenges, you know, maybe like we just don't try and convert those people. I think if they see value, then they decide. And I think like, you know, as a vendor, I don't know that it's my business to sort of convince somebody that they're doing it wrong if they've built some code that works for them. And maybe this is just a function of like us being an earlier stage company. There are so many people who are not the people that you're describing that we already sort of have our hands full with just making them successful. And these are people who sort of start thinking about the world from the SQL perspective. I do think as we grow... We will encounter more people who say, well, I have to do this in like imperative code in whatever weapon of choice they have, you know, Beam or K-Streams or Flink, you know, who say like, I I have to be able to do this that we may sort of gently say. And in fact, I think we've had some of these conversations where we kind of go like, well, what does that job do? And they're like, well, I filter this and I, you know, I transform these fields. And you're like, okay, do you really need to do that? You know, and they go, no, not really. And so there might be some amount of coaching people to rethink how they think about these pipelines. To that end, we've come up with like a catalog of patterns that we see most commonly. And they use the verbs that the engineers or the, you know, the data engineers or the application engineers use. So this catalog, I think it's 12 patterns. And there are things like filter, enrich, trigger, aggregate, you know, and like they can be sort of composed in sort of different ways. And so we sort of like, we sort of mapped out this catalog and we said to people, well, if you need to filter and aggregate, here's what that looks like in SQL and in decodable. And in a lot of cases, people say, oh, that makes sense. And they they go and they do it. There are occasionally cases where people have imperative pipelines 
mostly because one small part of that pipeline is really complicated and really domain specific. And then the rest of that pipeline is like the filter, transform, enrich, you know, basically the simple stuff that can be expressed easily in SQL. And for those people, I think there is a little bit of education to say, well, what if we actually split this into two pipelines with a stream between them so that the simple stuff is simple and the place where you truly need to do something really, really complicated, for instance, like if you were a real-time delivery company doing sort of like location prediction or, or sort of delivery prediction or something like that in terms of time, that's probably a thing that's like hard to express in SQL. But a lot of the feature extraction for that could be SQL. And so that's a case where we go like, well, maybe we split this in two and we sort of like leverage decodable for like the simple stuff that is not differentiated. And then for the crazy stuff that is like specific to your business, you know, we don't want to get in the way of that. And for that, you just drop down basically into, you know, Flink or Spark or K-Streams or whatever it is that you're using. And that has actually resonated with people, resonated, listen to me, I'm like a terrible CEO now. That makes sense to people. And I think that they kind of go, oh, so then like, I actually don't have to deal with all the details. We'll continue to see, you know, whether there are more cases that we can absorb, but ultimately, you know, we want to be in a position to help people, not try and convince them, you know, not start like a religious war about the right way philosophically to think about their pipelines. We have found, like I said, enough people are sort of aligned to the way that we think the world works. And admittedly, what we think is based on our own experience, sort of running these systems for like internal use cases and stuff like that at companies like you know, consumer businesses and enterprise businesses and stuff. And so, you know, I think what, to some degree, we're sort of building the kinds of systems that we would like to be able to use, you know, at, at some of those companies. And I think that lands well with people, you know, not kind of like being pushy about what they use the product for. But it's a really interesting question, you know, and I think we'll have to continue to see how that develops, though. Good stuff. When you look at the way that teams are structured these days, the breakdown between data engineers and data scientists and ML engineers, there's kind of, I guess, a shifting of responsibility that is happening as tools get higher level and easier to work with. And I'm wondering if if you feel like Decodable reduces the workload on the data engineering teams, and maybe you can just talk about how, well, I mean, I'm, I think not just Decodable, but, you know, companies like Fivetran that reduce a lot of the effort that is, you know, previously would have been the responsibility of the data engineer, how responsibilities shift in the data teams. Yeah, I mean, so our two communities that we think about are the application developers building like event-driven microservices. And like you're talking about this sort of like analytical data teams that are the data engineers or analytics engineers, data science, you know, and sort of like increasingly a bunch of different specialized functions there. You know, my sense is that this isn't necessarily about putting people, you know, out of jobs. It's not that we think that like data engineers shouldn't exist. And in fact, the thing that, for instance, we do, and I think, you know, the thing that 
like Fivetran does and, and companies like that, although I won't claim to be an expert on their business. You know, the thing that I think they're doing is they're actually removing the burden on the central data platform team, the people who know the lowest level sort of details about database infrastructure and, you know, the state management and sort of like those kinds of things about like job recovery and those kinds of things. I still think that tools like Decodable, Fivetran, you know, sort of Airbyte, that whole ecosystem of things, some of which are optimized for different use cases. I don't think we actually necessarily compete with like a Fivetran or or an Airbyte. But, you know, I really think what we're doing is we're allowing the data engineers and that sort of like whole cluster of folks to be able to do more in the same amount of time. Because it's not like there's like a fixed number of pipelines. I think the work of the data engineering team sort of like grows to fill the capacity of like what the business can throw at it. So like I would argue that for every data engineer you hire, you find like 10 new things that you want to do with data, you know, or sort of like all the customers that are on the other side of the data engineers, whether it's data science, domain experts, like, you know, who aren't maybe even engineers who are sort of like the data engineers are fulfilling, you know, the building of different kinds of like data products for you know, I don't know, civil engineers or for whomever it is that they're sort of supporting or the business users beyond that. So, you know, my perspective is that what we are doing is we're making them more efficient. Now, I think there is something interesting that sort of happens. You know, one of the things that we had a conversation about just the other day at Decodable is, you know, there was a time where an application developer could not do anything with the database without a DBA. And like, I don't know exactly when it happened, but I don't know a lot of DBAs anymore, except for like, you know, in sort of like the most high demand sort of database systems. I think increasingly, like, you know, we've actually changed the way applications use things like Postgres and MySQL, mostly the operational database systems where like people spin those things up on their own and do relatively simple operations, but they do a lot of them. So I, I don't think that data engineers are going to get squeezed the way that DBAs got squeezed by the development of systems like, like Decodable, because I don't think data engineers should be or even are in the business of building these you know, maintaining like flink runtimes and like, you know, dealing with like class loader nonsense. I think they prefer to spend more of their time building pipelines and thinking about how data is used versus building data infrastructure. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but, you know, my experience has been that, you know, at many of the typical Fortune 500 businesses, they'd rather be thinking about banking and insurance and retail than thinking about messaging systems and stream processing engines. And so, you know, I think our job is to make them more productive versus like, you know, limit the work that they do. And I think we're actually doing that. I mean, I say that, I say that reluctantly because vendors always think that they're helping people, but you know, I think like practically on the ground, data engineers can do more 
which means that all of their customers downstream, that the teams that they support can do more. And I think that that is, I mean, that's the goal, right? That's to some extent, you know, the effect that we're trying to achieve. And if they spend less time on what I would call undifferentiated scut work, right? Like cleaning up data sets is not the thing that makes, you know, Lyft or Uber, Uber, you know, it's really the marketplace of rider driver pairing systems and customer safety systems and rider prediction systems and those kinds of things that make them who they are. And so I think over time, we'd like to be in a world where people don't have to build at that level. You know, if we can make the current work, which feels like, you know, assembly code, more like C code, or even more like Java or Python code, I think, you know, using that as an analogy, of course, like, you know, if we can make their jobs a little bit easier, then, you know, we see that as a net win. And I think that that's what's happening. And I think we will see more interesting applications of data, you know, hopefully for the better of, you know, retail users or insurance applicants and so on and so forth. So I think that we're on sort of a healthy path to be able to support them and make them more productive. As we begin to close off, just to drive home the point of what you're building, can you walk me through the life of a SQL query executed on Decodable? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Decodable, there are, there are really two different things that people wind up doing. One is they configure connections, you know, either source connections or sync connections, you know, to like a Kafka topic or, you know, an S3 bucket or something like that. Once that's done, what people get is a stream. And that stream sort of feels like, you know, basically a Kafka topic that can be used by any number of connections or pipelines within Decodable. And then they write their chunk of SQL. And a pipeline is a single insert into select, you know, from SQL statement, which in turn compiles down to a flink job. And I say compiles down to sort of in the loosest sense, there's quite a bit of like, you know, SQL parsing and planning and those kinds of things, you know, some of which we leverage the pre-existing, you know, some flink code and Apache Calcite and those kinds of things. But eventually, you know, we have a catalog, basically a metadata catalog, similar to like the information schema inside of like a Postgres or a MySQL or something like that, that tells us about the streams and their schemas and all these other kinds of things. And so when you click save, what we're actually doing is we're loading that metadata, we're doing the parsing and planning, we are looking at the metadata we have about streams, we're doing schema mapping and, you know, compatibility checks to make sure that like, for instance, we will not let you save a SQL query that references a column that doesn't exist in a stream or or thinks about it as the wrong data type, you know, those kinds of checks. And once we have made sure that all that is true, we actually store that SQL plan, that, that query plan, along with a whole bunch of like metadata, for instance, we extract the streams that you've referenced for dependency information and lineage information, those kinds of things. And then you either activate that pipeline or, you know, once if it's running already, you can deactivate it and stuff like that. And with the activation deactivation or start stop is, is actually launching it. So once it's saved and planned, we know that that's sane and it's always going to work. And when you activate it, that's when we actually launch the job and actually start producing things. And that's where you get into the low level detail of 
launching the underlying Kubernetes containers and doing any state restoration if that job is being restarted. We'll like load in all sort of the previous state information and resume from the last offset that we processed. And we do all the exactly once processing shenanigans. So there's lots of item potency that sort of like we have to handle there around, you know, job recovery and recovering from sort of the right places and bringing in sort of any state around aggregation functions and enrichments and window functions and those kinds of things. But the net result for somebody is that they type some SQL, they hit activate and data starts flowing. And then once the pipeline's running, there's a whole bunch of infrastructure about getting metrics off of it to make sure that it's healthy and, you know, what the performance is. You know, when you log into Codable, you see things like events per second and bytes per second in and out and like those kinds of details that tell you more about your pipeline. And you'll continue to see more, I'll just say stuff from us to tell you about things like data quality and, and those kinds of things from pipelines in the future. We don't do enough of that just yet, but we'll do more of it. And then it's kind of off and running from there. So that's sort of the life cycle of, you know, building and deploying a pipeline with Decodable. There's all sorts of different ways that you can do it via the application or the APIs or, you know, declaratively in, you know, some files and stuff like that, that feels more like cube control, you know, if you're a Kubernetes person. But, you know, we try and make it as simple and error-proof as humanly possible. But that's it. Awesome. Well, that seems like a good place to close off. Anybody building streaming data pipelines should obviously come hit you up. And thanks for coming to the show again. Thanks. It's a real pleasure. Long-time fan of the show. So really excited to get a chance to talk to you about it. Appreciate the time.